We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Dear listener, welcome back. This is episode 135 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast with me... For tonight, I've got the 12th man, Paul. How are you, 12th I'm man? I'm very well, Fist. How are you? I'm very good. But we don't have Scott with us. He's got something else on. He was he was a bit um, secretive about what it was. A bit mysterious, is. was he? Yeah, so oh, we don't well. know what Scott's up to. But We'll have to dig deeper next time we speak with him. We will. Could be up to anything, Scott. So just the two of us, and it'll be a bit different because last week we called for feedback from listeners if they wanted to discuss any topics and three have come back. Wanting Excellent. To, yes, it is good. So let's see how we go. Hello, Brett speaking. Hello, Brett. It's it's the Iron Fist and the Twelfth Man here. G'day. How are you guys going? Going very well. How are Hi, you Brett. going? How are you? Good. Good, thank you. So you're okay to talk now? It's a good time? Yep, it's a good time. Great. So we're recording for the podcast and unfortunately, we don't have Scott with us, as you know. But um, um, but anyway, for the uh, listener, do you want to sort of give your feedback or, or what you wanted to say, and, and we'll take it from there? Yep. Well, yeah. Um, first of all, I'd just like to say I really enjoy listening to you guys and really love the podcast. Um, I basically agree about 99% of the time. Mm-hmm. However, there is one area where I'd like to maybe give a bit of feedback and see if I can change the conversation a bit. Mm-hmm. And it's in regards to um, some things you guys have said about Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Now, there was one particular incident um, where the Velvet Glove said um, they've got to accept they are a conquered people. Mm-hmm. When this was in episode one twenty one, and I, uh, I didn't really think that was um, really good language to use. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it really opens up for a good conversation and in, in getting positive change in our uh, in our country. Yep. If if you've got a minute. Can I just, I'll play about, I think it's about a three-minute excerpt from that that leads up to it. So are you okay if I do that at this point? Yep. Uh, yep, I'll play that now, um, and hopefully you'll hear it. Scott, have you ever been yeah. to Uluru? No, I never have. Right. And it's an area I've got to go and have a look at at some stage, but I can't climb the rock anymore. No, article, dear listener. Um, climbing Uluru is set to be a thing of the past after the Uluru-Kata-Tijuta National Park Board decided unanimously to ban the activity starting in 2019. There you go, Scott. If, you, if you're really keen, get there quick. Um, <laughs> the board, made up of eight traditional owners and three representatives from national parks, made the decision after consulting with the wider Anangu community who said it was overwhelmingly in support of banning climbing the rock. 
Pass had a deep cultural significance and was not a theme park. Um, quote from Senior Traditional Owner and Chairman of the Park Board, Sammy Wilsons. This is a quote from him. Some people in tourism and government, for example, might have been saying we need to keep it open, but it's not their law that lies in this land, he said. Oh. It's not their law that lies in this land. Okay. Mm. Um, <laughs> whose law is it that lies in this land? You know, that's the thing that I find ridiculous about this, where they say it's not, it's not your law that makes this spot and all that sort of nonsense. It's absolute garbage to think that you can have two legal systems in the same country. It doesn't work. Right. You know, they've got to accept that they are a conquered people. A horrible thing was done to them 200-odd years ago, but they've got to get over it. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, okay, which parts of that? They have got to accept that they are a conquered people. Is it having to accept or is it being referred to as conquered people? What's, or is it both of those things? What's the actual... Um... I think it's, it's, it's both of those things together. Um, <laughs> reminding a group that they've been conquered is probably a bit you know, demeaning. If there were Indigenous people listening, they would be, I think, a bit... You know, pissed off, or you know, hurt by that. How would how would they like to be referred to? Do you think? Um, as Australians, I'm thinking. But, uh, yes, but in terms of what happened to the Aboriginal nation, how would how would they see it? They they would probably see it as conquered, but as you know, the the basic thing you know with the whole change the date and everything. Um, they see it as being invaded. Yes. So, so from so. I don't know. This um, here's one of the things with all of this is it's very hard to speak on behalf of a whole group as to what a whole group feels about something because invariably yeah. there'll be some people who who will say, "Yes, we are. We were conquered, and we're not happy about it, but we were conquered." And there'll be other people who say, well, the fight's still on and we're not conquered yet, or, you know, some people Sorry. some people will actually be okay with that terminology. And um, I'll digress a little bit here, Brett, because it's interesting, just from a legal point of view, um, using the words conquered or not make a big difference. So... In the olden days, when Britain was sailing the seas and landing on, you know, islands and places and declaring them part of Great Britain, um, what would happen was, if there was already a civilization in place, then when the British arrived, it was said that they conquered those people. And in that situation, the way the laws worked were that the laws that were currently in place of that conquered nation would continue until British laws were promulgated which were in conflict with them. So the basic premise was all of the existing laws of the native people stay in place and the British, as they pass laws that are in conflict with those, will obviously supersede them. And the alternative situation was 
supposedly vacant territory that the British just moved into, where there was supposedly no body or no civilization. And in that situation, the way the law worked was that um, British law in full automatically transferred to the new land. So the new legal system of the legal system of that land was was the British legal system that you'd find in London at the time. So, um, so what happened with Australia was that uh, the British decided that the um, Aboriginal people were such a lowly civilization that in fact they weren't a civilization, and that we had a terra nullius you know, vacant land, and that, um, that so basically British law applied from day one. There was no Aboriginal law. And that was what was held to be the case until the Mabo decision. And when the Mabo decision came along, it actually said, and I'm sort of simplifying things here because it's a bit more complicated than this, but it sort of said, in essence... No, 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 that's not right. There was a proper people here. And, and again, I'm simplifying it, but they said, in, in, in essence, they are a conquered people. Therefore, the property law rights of... The, the property law of Aboriginal people was in place and it was only if the British or subsequent Australian governments passed a law in conflict with it, that uh, it would expire. So they said there was a traditional native title that, you know, tribes controlled certain land areas. And if the Crown at no stage had granted any um, freehold title or um, pastoral leases or... um, farming leases or, you know, anything like that, then essentially there'd never been any law made in conflict and so the native title survived. So, um, so in actual fact, I don't know if Scott was meaning to do this, but it was a bit of a backhanded compliment to call them a conquered people because it was an insult by the British that said they weren't conquered in the first place because they weren't even a civilization. So... Um, so being conquered actually means more rights for the Indigenous people. And in fact, if they ever get into a court of law in the High Court arguing some sort of native title, you can bet your bottom dollar that they will in fact be arguing that they were a conquered people because it gives them more rights than otherwise. So that, well, a little aside. That's interesting. Can I just um, weigh in there mm. then? Um, so, from what I remember, that, and I'm going back in my memory here. So, correct me if I'm wrong. You we were talking. You were talking about Uluru being closed off. Yes. So, if that um, particular council owns the rights to Uluru, okay. So Uluru, they have every right to then close it off. Yeah. Here's what happens with Uluru, and I'm glad you asked. Um, it had. The, the Crown had already alienated Uluru as a national park. So it had already 
um, in a sense, created conflicting legislation which extinguished native title. So what happened with Uluru was that I think the Hawke government agreed to transfer the land back to the Indigenous tribe on the proviso that it was leased back to the Commonwealth as a national park. So um, a very specific situation there with Uluru where an original national park gazetting wipe out national ti- uh, uh, native title but then they agreed to give them title on the proviso that they lease it back so now you've got this council of sort of a combination of indigenous people and um, national parks people in some sort of council deciding how the place is run ah but then obviously whatever contract was used to lease it back mm-hmm did not specify that they did not have the right to close it off to traffic. Oh, it, it, it's up to the parties to sort of um, agree on those things. So I think, I think, I think it's quite. It seems to be the case that 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 council can make that decision that they're going to close it off. You know, I don't think that's in doubt that they can do that. Um, so. Um, Would that not be a violation of the agreement to lease it back for public use and public access? Well, you'd have to look at the terms of the document. But you could certainly lease something back. You know, we give you this land back on the proviso that you... um, Let us use it. ...lease it back as a national park, but that doesn't necessarily mean... You know, and we want you to manage it as a proper national park. Now, that... That doesn't necessarily mean they can't close off sections of it, as in climbing it. So you'd have to look at the actual documents to see the terms and conditions. But um, it's a case where native, native title was extinguished and we have a sort of a contractual rights and you'd need to see the documents to see where they stand. So, so when the Aboriginal elder said, you know, it's not the laws of Australia that apply here, it's, it's our laws, well, that's not quite right. Um, and but anyway, so so on the so it might the, be a bit of a negotiation. Yeah. So just uh, getting back to that, um, um, Brett, where you said so Scott said they have got to accept that they are a conquered people. So in Scott's defence, I would say that conquered people is is um, uh, maybe he was inadvertently lucky, but um, <laughs> it's it's not necessarily an insult. It is actually. It would be insulting to say otherwise. Now, where you say the other thing aspect to it is the first part where he says they've got to accept. Um, I guess, have you got a problem with that part as well? Is that true or, or not? Um, or, or do you still have I, a problem with I it? Would, I would just think um, from my point of view, if you know, if Australia was invaded next year by the Chinese or uh, someone else, would we accept that? Well, or how many generations will we go down before we said, nah, clearly they wanted it more and we'll accept it? Well, we were invaded by the Japanese in the sense that they bombed Darwin. And, um, you know, some pretty atrocious things were done to my father on the Burma Railway and Changi Prison, but I'm going there next week to have a great time, hopefully. So... <laughs> um, uh, 
you know, it really annoyed me several years ago when Marcus Bagdatis was playing um, tennis at the Australian Open and there were these ethnic groups of who were fighting in the stands over tribal issues, you know, and it's happened with Serbs and Croats in in things like that where they'll identify as groups. You know, there's people in Europe are still fighting and arguing over fights that happened centuries ago. And it's... I mean, they can continue the, to hold a grudge if they want to, but you're only hurting yourself. I mean, we could continue to hold a grudge against the Japanese. Or the English but, or, for conquering Ireland. Or, I, I, I personally whatever. have Irish ancestors. Yep. Should I still hold a grudge against the English? It's, it just now, seems to me absurd. Yeah. I, I fully agree with that. Yeah. And I, I, that's where I come back to, I think, the language used there is not the best to try and get to the point where we can, you know, let all this stuff go. Yeah. I think we could choose better language when we're discussing, and trust me, I don't have any answers for the whole, you know, problems with some, you know, some Indigenous people face, not all of them, of course, because they're a wide-ranging group and all that. Mm. But, yeah, I think we could choose better language in any discussions that we have in regards to the whole area, and that would help us bridge these gaps and for us to go forward as a nation. Yeah. See, sometimes, though, you need to be blunt about things, perhaps. I mean, sometimes it's hard to say in a nice way something that strikes at the very heart of somebody's identity or ideology without... You know you're going to offend them, but it's impossible not to because they've built up an identity or an ideology which is wrong. So, you know, I might that, say to a Christian... So, so I might say to a Christian, you realise there's a fair chance that Jesus never existed. And, you know, to, and it, that could be extremely offensive to them and strike at the heart of, of their... Of their core beliefs but there's no nice way of saying it um or i guess well i suppose there is a nice way where you say do you realize maybe he didn't exist rather than just saying he didn't exist but it's (laughs) the mere fact of stating it is is the part that some christians would say well you shouldn't even say that yeah yeah. so i guess is what you're getting at okay so scott might have said can i interject yeah go ahead sorry yep um is that similar to the uh, Australians, like the people who get up in arms when some Indigenous people say they want to change the date? And, if, you know, some people go, oh, no, we can't change the date, possibly can't do that. It's a similar sort of thing, isn't it? Why are they getting so upset over a date? Yeah, maybe, but, um, but put it this way. The idea that Scott, what Scott said where he said they have got to accept they are a conquered people, I guess you could say you realise it's not doing you any good continuing to argue over what happened 250 years ago. 
I mean, you could say it like that, but is that any more condescending? I mean, the idea, if you wanted to say, to, if you wanted to convey the idea to the Aboriginal people that um, the best way forward for you is to identify as Australian and to... Um, and to and to um, embrace our entire community rather than trying to accentuate a division. I mean, how how do you say that? What what's the bit? How do you say that? There's some people that just there's no way you can say that to some people without them going into shock. Over and it. indigenous that is, that identity. Is seems to be hardening, if anything, doesn't it, rather than softening. Yeah. But let me say this. What yeah. if, what if say, the way to settle all this was for some of our cultural value, values to shift in the direction of the Indigenous thinking? Which values would you like to shift? I, I, I have absolutely no idea. So I have no opinion on that. I'm just wondering... Would mm. we consider that as part of the solution? Can I say something about that? That's a really interesting issue that you raise um, because values are at the heart of any culture, aren't they, really? Now, yep. some people might say, well, look, we'll get along a lot better if we can meet them halfway, if we can shift some of our values to better embrace or, 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 or mesh with some of their values. Um, I would say, sorry, no. Um, Australian society is recognised by most people around the world as being one of the most successful and the reason it's most successful, and it's not perfect by any means, don't get me wrong, but it's a relatively successful society because we do have certain core values like uh, fairness, uh, you know, equality of sexes, and, and now you know, we have marriage equality. We've finally achieved that. So if we were to say, well, in, you know, for the sake of... Um, intercommunal harmony, we should, for example, allow uh, you know, multiple marriage for Muslims, for ex just as an example. I personally don't... I think that's regressive. I think that's going in altogether the, the wrong direction. I think with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, we should be saying, look, regrettable things happened. Um, yes... It's been awful for a lot of you for far too long, but we want everybody to enjoy this country on equal terms. We will do whatever is required with the values we have of you know, equality of access to opportunity, education, employment, whatever. We'll do whatever it takes to try to bring everybody to the same level of opportunity. But if we, if we compromise on values, I think we're going to go down a slippery slope to a place we don't want to be, if, if that makes sense. Well, I would agree in, like, not allowing multiple marriages and stuff like that. Um, I was just putting forward a thought experiment and yeah. is there some things that we may 
compromise on, but you're saying no, not a single thing. I wouldn't say not a single thing, but I, I think in terms of values, like... I, I wouldn't say no, but I would just say, well, which ones? Yeah, which I, ones? I would be open yeah. to it, but I'd just say, well, which ones? And we'll examine them one by one and say, yeah, that's a good idea. Like, for example, in some cultures, you know, there's a lot more... Uh, uh, traditionally, um, grandparents live with their families and help, you know, they're part of the family. And um, whereas our culture is now tending to shuffle people off into a retirement home. Now, you might argue, and I don't know if it's the case, that it, in a traditional value of in the Aboriginal community is that elders are retained within the, the younger family and looked after. And I'd say, that's a great value. You're right. That's something we should be encouraging. So it depends on what it is. Mm. So there's lots of good ideas out there. But, yes. cultures, but there are some others that cu- may not be quite so palatable. And, and, you know, cultures are evolving things. They have to evolve and grow. And so, I know, Matt, I've heard you say that several times and yeah. I thought, well, is there some way our culture can evolve and grow for the positive that will... Yeah. Well, bring us all together. Yeah, well, that's one example where I reckon we could. Um, uh, and, and, you know, it might be more of the sort of communal living rather than discrete family living that might work. But who knows? It's open to people if that's what they yeah. want to do. So I would say, sure, I'd be willing to look at any ideas from any culture. And that's the beauty of cultures is we pick and choose and cherry pick bits and pieces Indeed. that we want to adopt and but discard those that we don't want to. Hang on, isn't that cultural appropriation? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, uh, that's I'm, right. Not, I'm not part of the regressive left. <laughs> no, <laughs> Actually, didn't Noel Pearson some years back um, say that, you know, the government had to stop treating Aboriginal people as if they wanted to live in the past, you know, with communal ownership of everything and grant uh, freehold title to individual Aboriginal um, landholders. I think he did say things like that. It was quite a few years ago that he came out with that. Probably could have because there's some Aboriginal people who definitely think like that. Yeah. I guess the other thing... um, one of my mates is a barrister who does a lot of mediation and he said that ultimately what you're doing is just giving people a forum to tell their story and once they've got their story off their chest and they've had a chance to tell it and everybody's heard it, then they're much more amenable to some sort of compromise um, situation. Um, so... Um, I guess I would like to say to the Aboriginal people, you know, you uh, tell us how you think it should have transpired history. In an ideal planet, how realistically do you think it should have transpired? So... Tell us. And I'd be really keen to hear the alternative history version that they realistically ex- think could have happened. So, yeah, I, I think I'm more interested in focusing on the future and how we're going to come together and I, I, I am too, but, people, but it seems to me that our Indigenous brothers and sisters aren't ready to move on to the future because they keep arguing about the past, and that's really what Scott was getting at, is... 
um, are you, you know, are you going to drop the fight and the, the past? Because in order to move on, that's what you're going to have to do. So one scenario I'm thinking of is to say, well, how do you reckon it should have panned out? You tell us how it should have happened. And it obviously can't, but maybe in doing that, you'll recognise that Pretty much what happened in the course of human history was inevitable the way it panned out and that we're all just um, pawns in a much bigger game. And <laughs> we're leaves that, in the wind, aren't we? <laughs> yes, and that what happened to you is not extraordinary and was always going to happen. And Or, or another thing, just to get them thinking about it, would be to say, OK, you're, uh, you're an... Uh, You've travelled back in a time machine, you know, to 400 years ago. What are you warning? What are you? What's the advice you're giving the Aboriginal people that will make any difference to the situation that we're in now in 2018? What what advice could you possibly give them that would make any difference? So, and I just think, I think a bit of Buddhist philosophy of acceptance is kind of what Scott's getting at, and is kind of what's you know if if. If we're all going to share cultures here, let's introduce a little bit of sort of Buddhist uh, acceptance of what's happened in order to otherwise just have permanent suffering. But anyway, that's... It's not an original thing to say, but, um, you know, you could, you could speculate as to if the British hadn't arrived, who, you know, what which imperial power would have because it was absolutely, as Scott says, inevitable that somebody was going to arrive on these shores and say, looks like a nice piece of real estate. If it weren't the British, it would have been the French or the Spanish or the Portuguese or the Dutch or the Germans or somebody or, or maybe the Chinese or the Japanese. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's inconceivable that this huge resource-rich piece of real estate would have, lay, would have been just left to the Indigenous people um, mm. for, forever. It's just inconceivable. Yeah. And who, no, you know, who, would have been, who would have been better? I'm not saying the British were, were very nice, but you know, it's arguable that they, they could have been treated even worse than they were. And just one final point is you know, the tribes that are currently custodians of different patches of land, you know, who did they fight and who did they conquer in order to get that patch of land? I mean, was that tribe always the ones in control of Uluru or did that, was there a big battle 200, 300, 400 years earlier where one tribe wiped out another tribe in a tribal conflict? And, and have they got claims to it? Where do you stop? So That is an interesting question that's I've thought of for a while is we have no idea of that sort of history mm. with our Aboriginal people and I think that's one of the greatest losses that we've had. Mm. We've had like the oldest continuous culture on the planet and we've lost all ability to study how they, you know, how they survived, how, how they interacted for so long, how, how they reached equilibrium and such. Yeah. How well, often did they? How often did they war? How often did they make peace? All that sort of thing. 
if if they're like the rest, to know that. if they're like the rest of the Homo sapiens on the planet, then there was a, you know plenty of wars and conflicts and killings and we murders could, and we could make some pretty good educated guesses. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But it would have been interesting to have another data point. Yes. There were anthropologists, of course, studying the Aboriginal people. Um, throughout the 20th century and some some quite interesting um, people out there in the middle of Australia and all over Australia, in fact, you know, studying them and uh, before even all, our, all the Indigenous people uh, ceased their traditional, you know, nomadic lifestyle. There were, there were some. Mm. Anyway... Um, uh Brent, I reckon we've sort of covered a fair bit of it. A if, bit of time. Yeah, if you you got anything else you wanted to add to it or any other? No, just yeah. thank you for yeah. giving me the opportunity to talk and thank you for listening to me. No worries. And how, how did you find the pod? How did you come across us in the first place, Brent? Do you know? Um, the Secular Party website ah, okay. was right. where I originally picked it up. Right. I've been listening for uh, a year or a bit, year or more now. Great. And became a patron yep. a few months back. Thanks. And whereabouts do you live? Um, in central Queensland. Right. Okay. Yep. We were just talking to another listener just before about how important it is to have face-to-face interactions with people, not just online. So um, if you're ever in Brisbane, look us up and we'll have a beer or something. How about that? Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So when you come to Brisbane, let us know. Will do. Okay. Alrighty, Brett, thanks okay. for that. And um, keep Thank listening you. and we'll be in touch down the track. Okay. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Bye. Thanks, Brett. Bye. I'm liking this. Hello, this is Matt. Matt, it's it's Trevor, the Iron Fist, and Paul, the 12th man here. Hi, Matt. Hi, guys. How are you going? Going, going really well. Good to speak to you. So you're, you contacted us and you were wanting to talk about dealing with tribalism? Um, well, I think maybe um, I'd phrase that a bit incorrectly now. Um, but, yeah, that that's the general gist, I suppose. Um, in particular, like, the, the impersonal way that people end up getting into these, uh, you know, online arguments and things like that. And they sort of just end up picking sides unthinkingly. And then before you know it, you know, they're dug in like ticks, um, and basically looking like Muppets over nothing. It gets pretty ugly, doesn't it? Uh, it can, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the Hugh Harris Facebook page I mentioned last week, and it was on again for young and old on Hugh's page again this week, and it really was all over um, the definition of atheism and an atheist and an agnostic uh, was what they were arguing over this week, and yeah, it was pr- <laughs> right. Yeah, pretty, um, pretty intense. So, got any theories as to uh, how to avoid it, Matt, or um, or deal with it? Deal with it? Um, yeah, maybe. So, I I guess you know what, what the main thing in trying to trying to deal with something that you think is a problem is try and understand it, right? So. One of the main problems is the nature of social media itself um, and that you, you just don't have any of these, like, personal cues that you would if you were talking face-to-face or even just talking on the phone mm-hmm. like we are now. I remember something 
from when I was a kid. I saw a documentary that had, uh, you know, John Cleese in it, and he was talking about the human face. And for a long time, that sort of explained uh, why road rage is a problem to me. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think I sent, sent you that link a few days ago. You, but you did. I had a look at it, yep. Yeah, so it's, um, it's a pretty similar problem. Uh, and just to explain that briefly um, to, the, to the listeners, I suppose the reason you don't get footpath rage like you do with road rage is that you have these little interpersonal cues. You know, if you bump into someone, you might have a little glance or a little, whoops, sorry, or, you know, some, some sort of body language uh, or personal contact that just sort of smooths things over, you know. You, it's another human that you're interacting with, and um, it's okay. Whereas if you're out on the road and this car sort of cuts you off or tries to kill you or does something that, you know, you, you think is a bit outrageous, mm. even even pretty calm people, myself included, can get, you know, pretty, um, pretty aggro about that. And I think the main reason is that you just don't have those interpersonal cues. Like if you actually catch up to them and maybe see that there's some old lady who dropped their glasses or something, you go, oh, well, all right, sorry, you know. Once you sort of understand uh, the situation that the other person is in, you, you tend to do, uh, you know, soften. Yeah, um, that's, that's one side of the equation, that if you're on is, the receiving yeah. end of poor behaviour or potentially poor behaviour or something you might interpret as poor behaviour or misinterpret, the, the cues can be sent to show that it's a mere accident and unintentional and not to mm. take it so seriously. So that's true. Um, so face-to-face helps that. The other side it of the does, equation, yeah. though, Matt, is, is when people are faceless... You know, what you're saying is good. Face-to-face helps avoid misunderstandings. But when people are faceless, they do, I think, tend to be just more belligerent and aggressive and nasty, and we hiding, see an be- hiding behind their facelessness. We see an example of that, that kind of deliberate uh, concealment in uh, some of the Antifa protests, don't we, where people deliberately show up with masks on mm. in order to act out publicly behaviours that if their face was uncovered, they may not be quite so uh, free with. Yeah. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, an- an- anonymity definitely does um, give, so, so I suppose, certain people, um, you know, kind of licence to to basically just be a dick. And mm. you know, I think, you know, the anti-fire thing is, a, is an extreme example because they are actually physically going out there, but... Um, you know, obviously in, you know, online situations, they're a lot more common. Um, you know, people do feel anonymous. Yes. And, you know, for, for some reason, you know, these things tend to come out and you just end up acting completely different. Like you say a lot of things, well, I try not to, but a lot of people do. You just say something that you, know, you would never think of saying that in real life to another person. Mm. And, yeah, things, yeah, things can get pretty nasty. Mm. I actually offered on the Hugh Harris Facebook page because the comment thread was like 50 comments long with these people just at each other. I said, guys, how about you come, we record an interview on the podcast where you can verbally say all these things and nut it out and um, I'll make you an offer. You know, if either of you is unhappy with how it went, then I'll just bin it and we won't 
we won't present it. So you just got wow. to write a veto. But but yeah. but at least one party wasn't interested. So <laughs> and and just wanted to keep doing it online. Yeah. So you know you have to question whether they really were hoping to resolve an understanding of something or whether they were just enjoying the fight and uh, yeah didn't really want yeah. resolution. But look on, yeah. on the up, on the positive side, it's probably a, in a way it's a it's a, it's an outlet for people, short of going down the pub and. You know, having it out with someone physically, it, it's it's relatively non-violent on the internet. It's rude, and I, I like you, Matt. I don't enjoy. Sorry, Brett, is it Matt? No, it's Matt. Back to Matt. Back yep. to Matt. Sorry. Yeah. Um, I I um I follow one or two pages regularly. I don't enjoy people bad mouthing each other even in text. I don't think it's necessary. I think people should be able to have a civil discussion without calling each other idiots or morons or dickheads or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, some people just can't seem to help themselves. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, some, some are just belligerent and, um, you know, some are, some are, I guess, cowardly because they would never do that in person. But uh, I think that, that sort of brings to the, um, the other side of the problem, which is that especially with, like, political discussions, people tend to take them so personally and react so viscerally to things mm. um, that, you know, challenge, challenge their deeply held beliefs. And I think... Uh, well, there, there's another podcast that I want to, you know, <laughs> steal your, your thunder, guys, but mm. there's another podcast called You Are Not So Smart, and they like that... Um, Thinking Fast and Slow book that you mentioned a while back, they they talk about all these psychological uh, factors which cause people to, you know, react the, the way they do. And there's there's a whole series that they do about why people are not convinced, you know, why people dig their heels in yep. when there's information that they don't like. And there are some things like political belief that people actually react to viscerally because they're so... Um, they're so closely held and so integral to the persona that they actually react with like a, a fear sort of fight or flight response. Yep. So, yeah, just for, for some reason, it, it has sort of turned out that way. And I think it's, it's definitely part of the problem because you can't really just throw facts at someone and all of a sudden, you know, they'll, they'll think, you know, Donald Trump is an idiot or something like that. That's right. If, if they've sort of gone in with that sort of, you know, with that attitude to start with, it, it takes more than just facts to change their mind, especially if it's something, you know, like identifying as a, as a conservative or something like that. Yeah. Um, Matt, how long have you been listening to the podcast? Um, about a year and a half, I suppose. Okay. You, you probably, yeah. in that case, what's that? Uh, you may or may not have heard episode 66, which was dealing with democracy for realists. Did you? Uh, does that ring any bells? I, I think I, I came in in the seventies or eighties. So okay, probably not. So, yeah. um, you know, dear listener, any of you out there who, um, if, if you need to go through the back catalogue, it's sitting there. But uh, there's a book which you might enjoy, um, Matt, called Democracy for Realists, and mm. it's quite. It's more of a textbook. Lots of graphs, lots of statistics, but it's an analysis by these two guys looking at U.S. elections and 
and basically proving that people vote for their tribe and then justify it later looking at the policies. But they'll basically decide on a tribe, accept that tribe, and then whatever the policies are of the tribe, they will then um, justify those. Um, yeah. And that's through various sorts of statistics they can look at, it's pretty clear cut that that's how democracy is currently working in America and probably working here as well because we're all the same in that sense. But some of the examples here, for example, in the 60s when John F. Kennedy was running for president, he, uh, of course, was Catholic and Catholics at that time always voted Republican. And there was just a huge spike in the vote by Catholics for the Democrats, simply because JFK, a Catholic, was running for the Democrats. And it really tore some people apart who were traditional Republican voters because their identities were suddenly in conflict and they didn't know what to do because they identified as Republican and they identified as Catholic and... For the first time ever, that Catholic one was sending them in the direction of the Democrats. So nothing to do with policies. It wasn't that his policies were anything particularly different to what was going on. It was merely about identity. Another interesting one was that um, in the 2014-2015 US House of Representatives, 98% of districts with black majorities elected black representatives. Conversely, just 5% of districts with white majorities elected African-American representatives. Mm -hmm. So white people vote for white people, black for black. It's an identity thing. And, yeah, that's how our democracy is working at the moment. Um, Yeah, and it's, like, my understanding is that that's that's not just, uh, you know, who you vote for. It's also just your general attitudes and, Mm. I, I guess, you know, what you value. So, you know, if you, uh, I don't know, if you like Barnaby Joyce, you are going to be instantly defending him for his recent, you know, transgressions and saying, of course he doesn't need to be fired. What are you talking about? It's a personal issue. Yep. But the thing is, you would have decided he's an okay guy first and, you know, formed that attitude and then later on filled in facts to you know, to try and defend that. And yep. that's kind of, that. that's why just throwing facts at people doesn't usually change their mind. And I think, I don't think it's going to change, Matt, because my theory is that this is how we've been evolutionarily designed because we evolved as, as tribal species and you had to maintain a position in the tribe. If you were thrown out you were dead and you just didn't survive. So if you had that sort of tendency, it got bred out of the system. So loyalty to the tribe is something that's just inbuilt, hardwired into us. And um, if you're going to shift people's opinions on things, you have to offer them an alternative tribe that they'll feel safe and warm in. And then they'll adopt the... Ideology of that tribe, I think, is how you do it. And the problem, yeah, um, you know, yeah, we're talking no, about rationalists right. and atheists and and that sort of community. Why are we struggling to get traction? And um, 
because we're a tribe. Because we're not a tribe. That's right. We're not, we're not cohesive. It's like herding cats. That's right. We don't have a common myth that we believe in. We just have a bunch of things that we disbelieve, which isn't a thing that's coherent to bind people together. And the failure of the Atheist World Conference is a case in point, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... The cancellation, I meant to say. Yeah, because we... You know, if you believe in a myth, as in the religious myth, then you'll just keep going to things that you've heard a thousand times before. But if you don't believe in the myth, then you go, well, I've heard that information before. I'll move on and get my information... I'll move on to something else. Look for something more interesting and more engaging. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And that's why when you, know, when, when you first called, I said I probably phrased mm. that topic wrong because I don't think we need to necessarily deal with tribalism because, like you said, we're, we're tribal creatures. We need to be in these groups and we need to belong but i think the um you know the lack of actual personal contact in the online world anyway it's created this sort of weird artificial tribe um and so you know what we really need to do is just get more actual proper tribalism and i'm not saying you know just quit your job and run off into the forest but there are people who say that that's the healthiest way for humans to to actually interact, but I guess in in online dealings anyway, just you know try and throw a bit more humanity into it, like the the occasional you know joke or bit of humor or even you know like your mother probably has told you, just you know be a bit polite, use your manners, and, and then that that probably helps with the the just ferocity. And I suppose the division that these sort of things cause. And so if you can, I don't know if this is actually bringing together, you know, a a secularist tribe or something, but if people can actually get along a little bit better online, they may be more likely to, say, you know, turn up to a secular party meeting or something like that. So, yeah, um, you know, we, we are tribal creatures. We need that. I just think it needs to be maybe made a bit healthier. Yeah, and I think if somebody's trying to organise the secular atheist movement in some way, then just relying on online isn't going to cut it. You need to get people together face-to-face um, in even, some fashion. Even just on the phone, yeah. even, you know, this is, yep. yeah, you know, this is world, world better than just arguing uh, in a world where a, you know, putting a full stop at the end of the sentence makes you sound like an asshole. Yep. And it may even mean that uh, those of us who see ourselves as secularists, as fair-minded, who, like Martin, Martin Luther King Jr., wanted to have us all judged by the, our character rather than our skin colour or any other uh, you know, external identifying features, we may be doomed to failure because I agree with the Trevor that we, we do have these inbuilt, what's the word, uh, deep... Default modes mm. that wow. make us act in ways that are often counterproductive and um, antisocial, in a sense, aren't they? We, we we we'd all like to see a world where we treat each other fairly and without any sort of obvious discrimination based on irrational factors. But you know, if if the group ideology says that's what we're going to do, then do, that's are what we we're hoping do. for too much. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Do you know, I I think if I can mention one more thing, Matt, 
And I think I agree with what you've said. And I, I think it's in a way getting worse. The tribalism is in, in a sense getting worse. And all our efforts as secularists to break down these um, irrational discriminatory barriers between each other is being made more difficult, not only by um, uh, campaigns like the anti-same-sex marriage campaign, but by those who claim to be on the right side repeatedly, repeatedly calling people privileged white males. Now, why on earth our skin colour has anything to do with it is beyond me. And I think it just makes... It just hardens people's conception that, yes, we are divided into these uh, subgroups based on skin colour, where, in fact, we shouldn't be talking about skin colour at all. It should be the least most important thing that we use to determine whether a person is worthy of membership in our society. So I'd like to see everybody stop referring to people according to their skin colour. It's, it's really quite irrelevant, you know? Um, yeah, it, w- it, would be, it would be lovely, but I think there are, you know, a lot of people who maybe just, you know, foster old grievances or they've been convinced um, that, you know, it, it still matters. So, but yeah, it's often white people that say it, you know? Yeah, they say, yeah, oh, but yeah, but you're a you're a, you're a middle aged white male, you know. So yeah. therefore, your opinion is invalid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, and it's like what what would have convinced them of that is, um, yeah, I'm not sure. Well, that's the right, ideology it's, it's the of, of their tribe, of, it's of the their I- left wing social justice warrior tribe. Yeah. That's that's mm. the ideology of that tribe. So. Yeah. That's the yeah, problem. Yeah. So they just so so they just uh, side side with that, um, you know, that ideology, and then fill in the facts later. Yes. Mm. See, what needs yeah. to happen, I think, is is you've got to offer people an alternative tribe, and rather than these ethnic tribes, uh, the tribe should be working class or or. Or middle class, or, or poor, or, or or just you know below the fifty percentile class. That's the class that needs to band together and stop some of the crazy stuff that's happening at the top end, where we're having corporate tax tax cuts and all sorts of other yes. things happening. Rather than you know, this is the thing about um, Abdul Maj- Yasmin Abdul Majid. You know, she was always on about. Um, People of colour and, and etc. But she, sh- you know, with the, that sort of platform, should have been about the working class and the disappearing middle class and fighting mm. for everybody in that situation, rather than particular segments based on skin colour. So you have to yeah. cre- get people moving to the working class tribe and out of the ethnic tribe into the working class tribe. I think. Mm. Totally agree. I mean, the whole um, subject of class struggle seems to have been lost in the struggle to identify as white coloured, you know, African, Aboriginal, whatever. Uh, yep. You know, whereas we all know that all white people are not wealthy, all so-called coloured people are not poor, oh. and yet 
that seems to be the defining feature that some people are interested in now. Mm. Yeah, you're right. And, um, you know, that's traditionally the, the, the way that people would keep power in societies is, you know, you keep the serfs fighting each other or fighting some, you know, some external enemy, whereas you just, you know, sit there at the top and, yep. you know, laugh away, I suppose. So um, I guess, I guess Trevor, what you're saying is that we need to kind of form, you know, form a, a, a more meaningful tribe. Yes, somehow. Yeah. So, <laughs> based somehow. on what? <laughs> well, hey, hey, I'm so planning not, out running a podcast on... here. I can't solve all the problems no, of the world. I, I agree with you, Trevor. I'd just on, like you yeah. to, you know, come up with some sort of identifying features of our new tribe that we need. Okay, I'll let me work on it. Okay. Well, I've just I like, given you one. We'll class. give you two weeks, okay? I like, I like that blue face paint they used in, um, in Braveheart, so maybe we could try that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. All right, Matt, have you got anything else you want to add? Otherwise, we'll wind it up. Um, oh, well, you know, you could go on and on, but I, I, I guess, yeah, you know, just whatever, whatever we end up doing, let's just try and encourage, you know, real mm. human interactions mm. and not these just ridiculous you know, vicious things that end up happening online where you just end up walking away from it going, man, mm. secular party people are arseholes. Yeah. You know, because that, that doesn't really solve anything. It doesn't change their minds because mm. their values are the things that determine that. And, um, you know, let's just, I suppose, let's just try and get along and actually, yeah, from time to time pick up the phone or, you know, pick up the, the mic as you guys do. And mm. yeah. Whereabouts do you live, Matt? Uh, I'm in in Brisbane, in Paddington. Oh, there you go. Okay. We sh- we should have a we should have an Iron Fist Velvet Glove get together of people so we can meet face to face. That's you know the sort of thing we should be doing. A pubcast. Yeah, we should we should have a. <laughs> we should, yeah, absolutely. I'm away for a couple of weeks, but um, we'll put that on the agenda where we um, get together. Anyone in South East Queensland, you know, Brisbane Gold Coast, wants to get together for a drink and and practice what we're preaching here, Matt. Yeah. Well, you know, it's getting atheists together is like herding cats, right? Because, mm. Mm. you know, the, the thing that unites us is just not not buying some crazy old story. So it's it's yeah. a bit it's a bit hard, but you know, it's what what else can we do right now? You know, you can't solve the solve the whole uh the problem in one little call. Mm. You did mention the secular yeah. party, Matt. Yes. Now, should I assume you follow the secular party Facebook page? I do, yeah. Oh, good on you. I'm not. I'm not. Not a member, though. Okay. Um, I have. I have sort of, you know, mixed feelings about joining political parties in mm-hmm. general, but understandable. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's definitely the one that I, I guess, you know, most identify with. Mm. Yeah, I, I follow that page myself, and I, like you, I find some of the um, commentary a little bit off-putting, but you know, I figure it's. It's just text on a screen. It's not fists in my face. And, um, you know, I, th- I think we have to be careful not to get too sensitive about language. I, I agree people should be more civil, and I wish they would be, but I, I, don't, want to, I don't want us to become this um, group of, you know, ultra-delicate, you know, the, the term snowflake is often used, but I, I think yeah. we have to be a little bit uh, willing to... You know, give it and take it a little bit because we're not mm. landing physical blows after all. 
Well, there's a commentator on that page called Bangalong something or other, and he just annoys the crap out of me to the point where I, I, I really don't really follow that page anymore because... That's a pity. Yeah, Joe. it's sort of... Because he's... He sort of vandalised the comment well, section I, and I don't want to waste... I feel like I'm wasting my time then when I'm reading stuff where yeah. he's vandalised the comment thread, so... He doesn't do the damage, I don't think, that you attribute to him. I think you, you give him too much, uh, too much weight. I, I, you know, he's, he's just one of many and uh, he's by no means the most rude, but... I, you know, I personally, I, you know, I look at what he says sometimes and other times I just ignore it because oftentimes he says quite stupid stuff and once or twice he makes a, you know, relatively intelligent comment and I think, yeah, okay, that's a bit more like it. That's a bit more in keeping with the conversation on the page but, you know, um, I, I don't think he has the impact that you attribute to him, Trevor, anyway. Mm. Oh, you, you certainly need to pick your battles because, uh, you know, sometimes you do see things that are, uh, you know, they, they do get to you. So, um, you know, in, in terms of that arena, like that's mm. one, one piece of advice I can recommend is just pick your battles, you know, yeah. decide if, if mm. this hill is worth dying on. <laughs> um, <laughs> because don't forget, it's you, it's you versus. It's you versus the entire world, just about. <laughs> yeah. It's very you know, gladiatorial <laughs> that you're sort of yes. picture you're painting there. Great imagery. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you know that's that's how it feels sometimes. But yeah. and you know that's that's not such a problem. But I guess you know the the main point is that that kind of interaction is often taking over real human interaction, mm. and that's you know that's that's the big part of the problem for me. So if if you're going to spend time in that arena, just try and be a little bit more human, you know, throw yes. in emojis, uh, say hello, say I thank agree. you, throw I in agree. a bit of humour, you know, take away the sort of, uh, I guess, robotic, just throwing facts at people. Mm. Um, and, of course, realise that it takes, you know, usually more than facts to sway someone's... Um, you know, someone's values is really what you're going after. Mm, mm, agree. So, you know, is it, is it worth it? Mm. Yeah, I think it's worth that. it. Because, yeah. uh, you know, we live in Brisbane, but a lot of the people on the page live in other parts of Australia, other parts of the world. And, you know, if we didn't have that internet forum, we probably would never hear those people's thoughts. So I personally think it, it has immense value in terms of exchanging ideas across vast distances that as wouldn't otherwise be available. Shouting matches. Yeah. Well, as shouting as matches as or whatever. But <laughs> I mean, you, you can, if, you, if you have the patience, you can see through the shouting match and see past it to the, the times when you do get some very meaningful exchanges of ideas and opinions and... I think it has immense value. I mean, I regularly uh, exchange ideas with people on the other side of the planet, you know, mm. in America, in Europe, uh, occasionally other countries, and that's just, for me, it's amazing. It, just... it is amazing, but our, our brains are not evolved that way <laughs> okay. yet, so we still need to bear, bear that, yes. you know. We still have lizard kind of brains. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, you know, monkey, monkey brains. Yeah. 
Hey, Matt, we've got one more listener that we're going to do on this um, episode, and I'm sort of at the time where I said I'd call them. So uh, I'll wind it up with you, and thanks for getting in touch, and keep listening, and in a few weeks' time, we'll organise some sort of meet-up with people um, for a, I don't know, Sunday afternoon drink at a pub somewhere or something like that would be good, so... Um, Sounds awesome. Yeah. The first Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast. That's it. Yeah. So, alrighty. Thanks, Matt, for for joining us, and um, and we'll be in touch. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. See Thanks you, Matt. Bye. That was good. That was good chat. Um, Another beer. beer. <laughs> Dear listener, um, we also got a message from Ken who asked, "Do you guys recommend any sort of group or organisation for people to join or support?" Are there any out there doing a good job? Question mark. Twelfth man, what do you reckon? That's a tough one, isn't it? I, uh, gee, I don't like any of the major political parties very much myself. I, I have a lot of criticism of all of them. The minor political parties uh, have a huge struggle mm. to really just get into the game. Uh, the secular party is a case in point where there are a, a, a small number of, you know, quite passionate people who would like to see a few things change, but they just don't have the resources to have any impact. Yeah. So some people would find that very discouraging at the outset and just say, why bother? But I think you mentioned somebody several weeks back who joined the Labor Party with the intention of getting something on the Labor Party um, policy platform and succeeded finally. Yes, Deep Throat mentioned a lady, I think, who was involved in assisted, you know, promoting assisted dying legislation and basically became active in the Labor Party, got it on the agenda for the conference got it listed on there. So, um, you know, I used to be a member of the Secular Party, but I came to the conclusion that it was just wasting my energy because mm. that particular party, nothing was going to happen and it would just be just pouring energy down a well. Um, the Sex Party has become the Reason Party. They do have a member in Parliament in Victoria, I think, and I love their policies. Um, whether a minor party can get up, I don't think they can have an impact in Australia. I know minor parties have got up overseas, but I think like Pedermis in Spain, but I think that's happened in countries where there's been massive upheavals in their society. They've got real problems and people have been shaken to their core that the future is not what they thought it was going to be. And in Australia, we haven't reached that sort of critical moment yet. So while things are still on the surface at least, fine and dandy, I think most people will stick to one of the two major parties. So um, so if I think it's, you know, if you're inclined with one of the major parties, I reckon go and get involved in a branch and and... Do what that lady did to push some something through. Um, you know, if you're liberally minded, then at least you'll help combat some of the religious nutters that are trying to take over 
The Liberal Party. Yes, the Liberal Party might even be worth trying to to reform into a true Liberal Party. Just just to be, you know, in a branch to give another voice. Um, I don't know how often they meet or whatever, but yes. um, maybe. Other groups you could think about, Ken, would be like um, Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools or FIRUS in New South Wales. Mm. Um, I think these smaller groups that are actively working on one issue can can get things done and can do good stuff. So they would be organisations that actually end up achieving things. Um, and the same with some of the assisted dying groups that are around. So, um, or pro-choice groups as well. What about the Australian Secular Lobby? The National Secular Lobby? That's it, the National Secular Lobby. They're not really looking for members as such. Mm. They're more... They'd love some donations, but mm. I don't think they're looking for members to be doing anything. Okay. So, no, not especially. Um, so, um, the rationalists. There you go. The rationalists. They'll just you know talk about things and they'll, they'll be talk. keep you entertained. A bit yeah. like the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast mm. in that sense. So, um, you could join our community, Ken. I'm, I'm going to need some help down the track. So, I think I'll. You know, in a few weeks' time, put out a little bulletin of people who might want to assist with different things because I need some help with social media to get this podcast promoted. And I also need help with organising some interviews with people. So, you know, there you go. Um, the Satanic Temple was something you were interested in recently. Look, I would say that in America, the Satanic Temple would be one of the most effective groups in getting. Um, prayer vocations removed from council meetings, Mm. from getting the Ten Commandment monuments removed from outside council buildings, and for objecting to some of the anti-abortion measures that different states are implementing where they're forcing women to suffer um, sort of three-day waits and having to read material and stuff. So they're actively doing stuff in America, so if a satanic group in Australia gets active and does things, then they could potentially be a good one. Yeah. Mm. If they, if you see a if. satanic group setting up in your neighbourhood, yeah, well, you know, with, the, um, if up, upside down five pointed stars, goats' heads, stuff like that, yeah, flying a broom just above your head, you'll know that's that's them. So yeah, um, the other thing Ken asked and also Anonymous asked was whether recommendations for books, podcasts and sources of information. And in response to that, I have got a little um, link on the website now in the main menu, which is called Recommendations. And I've got some podcasts, some books and some blogs listed there. If you're looking for inspiration, head over to those. So there you go, Ken. That's um, that's the answer for that. Just while we're on some administrative sort of stuff like that, um, podcast awards. There's an Australian podcast award going, and dear listener, the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast is nominated because I, I nominated it. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? There's a link in the show notes for where you go to vote for the podcast. It will require you to register your name and email address and they will confirm it. So 
It's not just a simple one click and you're done, but that's good because it proves it's a legitimate vote. Have you chosen your outfit for the awards ceremony? Black dye, I think. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so there's that. And, okay, well, let's move on to some general articles, 12th Man, mm-hmm. seeing we've got the time. Um, recently we've been talking about groups like the one in Albury who were preying on the street and accosting women who were entering the fertility clinic. Pretty ugly scene. And in um, some states, they have legislation to say that those people are not allowed to come within 150 metres or 300 metres of a fertility clinic. And the ACT has got such a provision. And there's a couple of three guys who previously used to protest with placards and and sort of um, talking to people, they are still turning up, but they are just praying silently and the police um, have charged them. So their defence is, well, we're just silently praying on the street and... We're not doing anything more than that. So. What were they charged with? Well, charged with breaching this law of being within inside the exclusion oh, I see. zone. Oh, I see. Um, so they were praying within the exclusion zone. Yes, yeah. That'll be an interesting one mm. to see how that one pans out. And unfortunately here in Queensland, we don't have any exclusion zone legislation. And religious groups around the world apparently decided that on the February 14th they would kick off 40 Days for Life, an annual tradition where they pray, protest and approach patients outside fertility clinics mm. on every day of Lent until Easter Sunday. And that's going on around the world and it's happening here in Brisbane at uh, the Mary Stopes, the Marie Stopes Abortion Clinic in Bowen Hills where there are some Christian protesters doing their praying and accosting women as they try and enter the clinic. And there's a great little group from Pro-Choice Queensland, some ladies there who are actually meeting the patients and escorting them into the clinic and helping them run the gauntlet of these activists. Mm. So there you go, Ken. There's a group you might be able to join. Yeah, I That's thought a that, useful, was, productive. that was a, a very positive and... Um constructive reaction to that sort of harassment. Yes. So one of the ladies from the clinic was saying that, um, talking about the protesters, they're mostly praying with their rosaries. Um, As Jackie Bunce said, that sometimes patients come in in tears after interactions with the protesters. So... They're nasty groups, aren't they? And they um, claim to be Christian. The escorts are, of course, giving them kind words and also chocolates. Yes, and just, you know, support and ushering them in. So That's right. And I think that would make a huge difference for a lot of people. Yeah, I think so. So there we go. There's that. Another shooting in America. This uh, 17-year-old with an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. Twelfth man... This guy could buy a gun, an assault rifle, but he can't buy a beer. <laughs> what is it? He legally cannot buy a beer. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? he can it? buy an assault rifle. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's incredible. 
Absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, and yet uh, Americans, or a lot of Americans, have convinced themselves that there would be absolutely nothing more threatening to their democracy and their way of life than to deny them the right to buy an AR-15 or any other military-grade uh, assault weapon. Yeah. It's just uh, it's mind-boggling, isn't mm. it? Some states like Kentucky and Kansas do not have any age limit at all. So if you're, if you're old enough to walk up to a counter and exchange money, you're old enough to buy a gun. That's unbelievable, <laughs> it's, isn't it? It's a broken... It's, it's a, a broken law. It's a broken country. Mm. It is a broken country. And, of course, Donald Trump said, very sad that the FBI missed all the many signals sent out by the Florida school shooter. This is not acceptable. They are spending too much time trying to prove Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. There is no collusion. <laughs> Get back to the basics and make yeah. us all proud. So, Can I, on that topic, mm. I came across another article mm. uh, published in Psychology Today by a man called David Neos, mm. if I've got the pronunciation correct. Now, he says, supporting the NRA's agenda of pro-gun absolutism, meanwhile is a cadre of elected officials who would describe themselves as pro-life. These politicians will stop at nothing to ensure that a fertilised egg within a woman's womb is carried to birth, yet they won't lift a finger to protect born children from military-grade weaponry. And to take it further, among the lawmakers thriving from a symbiotic relationship with the NRA, you would be hard-pressed to find even one who does not identify proudly as a Christian. These elected officials claim history's most famous pacifist as their saviour, while simultaneously ensuring that armaments are widely and easily available throughout society. It's all tribalism, 12th man, as we were speaking about earlier. Abortion, um, you know, pro or against, uh, was, wasn't really divided on party lines in America until quite recent times. And it was a case where the party leadership made, you know, the Republicans went pro-life and the party faithful just followed them because they're part of the tribe and that's so when you look at statistics in terms of thoughts about um abortion and pro-life issues um there was a community that was relatively split and not along not split on party lines until the republicans decided it was an issue they wanted mm. to make and um everyone followed and it's only in the last several decades at the most i think that the um Christian community, and I know that's a, a fairly variable community, um, by no means uniform, have seen the Republican Party as their party of choice. Mm. Yep. yep. Their tribe. Their tribe, that's mm. right. Donald Trump, of course, uh, the Russians have obviously got something on him. It's either... It's probably more than just sexual exploits with prostitutes. It's probably lending him money or giving him money for all sorts of things. But the way he is just refusing to um, want any sort of examination of Russian involvement in the election, um, 
that's the most obvious ex- explanation. So that must be what's going on there. And it seems that finally they've had enough of thoughts and prayers over there. Like, there's quite an anti-thoughts and prayers movement struck up after this latest shooting. So they immediately did... said, forget your thoughts and prayers bullshit. We've had enough of that. And yeah. uh, Why it took so long? Yeah. I like this comment by this lady who said, why not just ban guns? And when people are upset about it, just send them thoughts and prayers. If thoughts and prayers are good enough for people who've lost their families then it's good enough for people who've lost their guns. So I like that one. Ah, what have we got here? I think I just closed one that I shouldn't have. Um, oh, 12th Man, we spoke about vaccinations last week, week before. You did not want to force vaccinations on... Anybody. Anybody. Now, I know, yeah. I, I suppose I have to make an exception for the military because I guess when you join the military, you give up your autonomy, don't you? Mm. You have to be willing to take orders on a whole range of levels. So if a child, if, if measles is just running rampant, like an outbreak of measles is, is, is happening and a parent refuses to vaccinate their child and the child suffers measles and a significant disability as a result. Should the parent be up for any liability or not? I'm just trying to f- remember what your position was on that. Was there any negligence action available in your mind against the parent or was just, um, that's okay? I don't know. I haven't given it much thought, to be honest, but oh. I'm definitely against mandatory vaccination yeah. as, a, uh, as a, a state mandate, yes, right. because it's an invasion of your physical integrity, and yes. I think I would definitely draw the line there. Right. But you're not sure in terms of the parents, whether they could be held uh, It's r- a difficult one, isn't it? For, if for you've the... ever read any, any literature on um, free will... Mm. For example, mm. it uh, raises some interesting Does. questions, doesn't it? Mm. On on responsibility and where it, where it stops. Yes, uh, I, have, I really don't know. Right. Okay. Apparently, in America, the state of Idaho is the faith healing state. <laughs> so really? that's the state where religious extremists go when they want to deny their children access to modern medicine. So this is a little bit different. This is where a kid has perhaps got a disease and the parents are denying um, a treatment for religious reasons. So uh, protesters there claim that since the 1970s, 183 children have died in Idaho and their protest involved putting 183 coffins on the steps of the... um, uh, Capitol building or something like that. Do you um, mean they've died because their parents refused to allow them to be treated by medical correct. experts? Yeah. And, in fact, the Idaho legislation has got a specific provision in it that says that parents will not be liable if they withhold medical treatment due to a religious conviction. So the nutters in America in that situation with a terminally ill kid go to Idaho to ensure the kid actually doesn't get treatment. Terrible. It's sad. Mm. Very sad. So that's what's going on over there. Uh, thoughts on circumcision? 
Twelfth Man. So if uh, if you're of the view that we can't enforce a vaccination on children, can we stop Jewish families from circumcising their boys? I think we can. Very good. I think it's altogether a different case. Mm-hmm. Vaccination is actually injecting something into a person's body. Mm. Um, I don't think anybody should be forced to have something injected into their body, good mm. for them or not. Um, should be be allowed to stop parents snipping bits off their children's bodies? Yeah, because I, that's that's a form of assault. I mean... That's an irreversible alteration of the child's physical form and with potentially bad uh, outcomes for that child. Mm-hmm. Uh, lifelong outcomes, in fact. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I know there's an argument that some people put up that it's, in fact, beneficial from a hygiene point of view. I've read a few pieces of literature on that and that seems contestable. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were some studies done apparently on in Africa of, of men, uh, circumcised men and the, the prevalence of HIV AIDS. And, uh, but, you know, there were some strange variables in the study that, that were or weren't mentioned, depending on who you read, mm-hmm. that would appear to make the whole thing kind of uh, meaningless, the study meaningless, because... You know, I mean, it's, it, why yeah, not no just si- give them... There's no scientifically justifiable no, reason there wasn't. To do it. Why not good. just give them condoms, for yeah. goodness sake? Yeah. Whereas we know the Catholic Church, for one, was um, in the areas where it had influence, was discouraging people from using condoms, mm. which just seems insane, doesn't it? Well, it's the Catholic Church. But, look, at the end of the day, snipping people, snipping bits of skin off a, off a child's body yep. without consent as a re- religious ritual I think is um, beyond the pale. I think if they want to continue with that religious ritual as a sign of membership, by all means, but wait until that child is of consenting age, whatever that may be. And then if the child says, yep, I definitely want to be a member and I'm willing to sacrifice that part of my body then by all means. Mm. The reason I ask is that um, Iceland um, is proposing to outlaw boys being circumcised. And, of course, their proposed law has been slammed by Jewish leaders. They say that it would be an attack on Judaism. And um, anyway, it's been put forward by one of the politicians over there, Circumcising girls has been illegal in Iceland since 2005, but there has not been a provision for boys. Uh, The bill proposes a six-year prison term for anyone found guilty of the offence. Religious leaders, including those from Jewish and Catholic community, have criticised the plans. Mm. So the Catholics have also criticised it because they're worried that it's the thin edge of the wedge and they want to protect religious freedom religious so, privilege is yeah. what it's about not freedom yes so um, 
I read a little bit about this in relation to Muslims because they also circumcise boys. Really? And I was curious to know, because the, in the Jewish ritual, it's on the eighth day after birth, I believe, mm-hmm. if I have it right. Um, that's definitely non-consenting on an eight-year-old baby. Um, mm. For the Muslims, I, I read a range of accounts. Some of them said as soon as possible after birth. Uh, there was mention of the seventh day after birth. But others were saying, no, it should be before the boy begins his religious studies, you know, before he starts memorising the Koran. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in other words, before he becomes an active member and of the Islamic uh, community and, and before he can go to start praying. One of the reasons they gave was because before you pray as a Muslim, you're supposed to cleanse your body. And they said... If you're uncircumcised, yeah. If you're un, well, especially before you pray, yeah. Uh, they said if you're uncircumcised, there are residues of urine under your foreskin that make you unclean and therefore unworthy to enter the mosque and pray. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems pretty tenuous to me, I have to say. But look, um, you know what I would say to them is, you'll get used to it. You know? <laughs> Um, a lot of, as you know, in Australia, a lot of Christian boys used to be circumcised, but I think yes. the, the, the number has gone down yes. quite a lot in recent years. Uh, yeah. And, did, you know, has it caused any problems in the Christian community? I don't think so. Mm. That's an interesting one. Um, I agree with everything you've said, but uh, don't hold your breath waiting for a politician around here to introduce that one. They're absolutely gutless on that one. Yeah. Um, our democracy is in trouble, 12th man. Uh, Emma Alberici, good journalist, mm. wrote a very good piece on how the tax cuts for corporations was not a good idea. And our Prime Minister gets up in Parliament at question time and accuses her of writing a half-baked piece that's one of the worst pieces of ill-researched stuff he's ever read. Did he say that? And the ABC turned around and went, yeah, it probably doesn't meet our guidelines and pulled it from their website. No. Because I haven't seen the piece, but I'm I'm shocked because she is, I agree with you, one of the best journalists they have on stuff. It's not a contentious issue what she was saying like no. the reserve bank will say the same thing they, and i think they have done so this was just bullying by the prime minister and it was cowardice by the abc the, to pull the article the abc has become gutless we need a strong abc because we, do. we, we can't rely well, the murdoch press is appalling I was talking to my mother about something in the Courier Mail the other day and well, actually maybe my wife asked me my opinion and I said, what article is that? And I said, look, I just can't trust as a matter of fact that that actually happened. I just, I just don't believe it. Not even in the Courier but, Mail? Yeah, exactly. I said, so I can't even talk about it because I refuse to even acknowledge that as a fact that particular incident happened. So, <sighs> uh, you know, the Fairfax one will fall over at some stage. We'll be left with nothing. We need the ABC. So it's a worry that their leadership mm. just fell over on that one. Yeah, so. they're, and their the editorial standards uh, are falling. 
Definitely. I think, I think our society is going to be left relying on things like the John Menadue blog and the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. For, I think for Iron brave, Fist and Velvet Glove above all. Yeah, for brave, independent journalism, dare I say it. <laughs> anyway, there's another link to an article from the John Menadue blog by Michael Keating, which talks about um, how the trickle-down effect just does not work and what Emeril Barici was saying was perfectly reasonable. Two sitting Queensland judges should quit their roles as legal advisors to the Anglican Church, given the risk of controversy around the Church's responses to child sexual abuse claims, according to a leading authority on judicial ethics. So we've got Justices Deborah Mullins and David Thomas have been forced to defend their roles as honorary legal advisors to the Anglican Diocese of Brisbane. And they seem to be trying to hang on to their position and saying, oh, it's all okay. Um, If a case came before us that involved the Anglican Church, we would just step down. And I say to them, that's not good enough. We're paying you a lot of money to be a judge and we don't want you stepping down because you've got a little sideline gig, voluntary that it may be. We need our judges on deck whenever possible and if you can't do that, then don't be a judge. You shouldn't be on things like that. So yeah, I was quite shocked by that. Hmm. This is an article about a guy who decided, I've had enough with the Catholic Church. He'd been abused as a kid and had been reading all the stuff in the Royal Commission and he said he needed closure. So he wrote to the church and said, can you advise me how I can be excommunicated? Seems reasonable. Mm. In November 2017, his request was finally answered. The Vicar General of the Archdiocese of Sydney sent him an actus formalis defectionus ab ecclesia catholica. What does that mean? Do you read Latin? It's basically a document where you defect from the Catholic Church. You divorce yourself from the Catholic Church and they will accept your sort of resignation as such. Um, So, yeah, Uh, it's unknown how many people have been granted this kind of official divorce from the church. The Archdiocese of Melbourne said, no more than five a year, seek it. (laughs) That many? Yeah, so there you go. It's possible to get a divorce from the Catholic Church. Mm. I had no idea that that was possible. Interestingly, on my way over here this evening, I heard on the radio um, Australia's only known registered Islamic imam who is openly homosexual. And he said there is no such thing as excommunication in the Islamic religion. But that let you out. Well, he mentioned that specifically. He said, yeah, you can't, because he was asked, does your... Openly homosexual. Openly homosexual status. Right. Does that mean you could be excommunicated? He said, no, it, it, that concept doesn't exist in Islam. Yeah. Interesting. Mm, that is interesting. Quick thank you to our patrons. Thank you, Sean, Alex, Janelle, Craig, John, Jason, Grant, Wayno, Ayami, Brettna, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, James, Craig, Jimmy. You're all tremendous. We didn't get any last week. 
Now, last week was a two-hour, ten-minute podcast featuring a great interview with Caitlin, a great interview with Han too. Didn't get a single patron. Oh. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to think. I'm starting to think. I can't seem to face up to the facts. I'm tense and nervous and I can't relax. This Colonel Sanders job is getting me down. A crazy chicken chasing me all over town. Psycho chicken. To be one of those psychopathic chickens, Definitely you want to be not. one of the good, friendly chickens in a clutch of hens that's just doing the right thing. So, so sign up on Patreon and um, and you'll just feel better. It's actually be you'll feel good. Yeah, surely. <laughs> if you don't, I will. <laughs> <laughs> right, twelfth man. That was another. Um, oh. You're pointing at something. What do you want to say? What's that? Well, I have a, a little message oh, to yes. our friends in Japan because the Iron Fist and his lovely wife are going on a trip to mm. Japan. Being a person with um, some history uh, in Japan, I lived there for several years and um, I don't speak the language very well, but I can. Uh, I, I had a Japanese friend help me write down a little message for our Japanese friends. Hopefully we have some dedicated listeners in that wonderful country. There's a lot of them. Like nearly half as many as listen in Australia listen in Japan for some reason. It's bizarre. Look, presumably they're Japanese people who are fans of the English language and are interested in politics and society and are interested in a, you know, point of view from another country. But maybe they're also English-speaking, you know, Australian expats, maybe Yanks, Canadians, Poms, whatever. Maybe it's just a group of guys working the ski fields who just discovered us. I don't know. Could be. But, look, I'd like to encourage our actual native Japanese friends to Mm. take more interest so I've prepared a little talk, a little announcement in Japanese, may uh-huh. I? Yes, please go ahead. Okay, yes, so yes. in, you know, please uh, excuse my poor pronunciation, but I'll do my best. The Iron, Iron Fisto and the Berbeto Grabu no Toreba to Kare no Tsuma no Zina ga Konsumatsu kara yaku tokakan Nihono お、と、お、と、ずれる
レクリエーションのためだけですので天皇や総理大臣に会う約束はしておりませんですが彼らを見かけたさん見かけた I'll start that part again <笑>ですが<笑> You're nearly there. 彼らを見かけた際には皆様にぜひ声をかけていただきたいと思,い、ま、思っております彼らは日本という素晴らしい国で新しい出会いがあることを心から楽しみにしております。ありがとうございます。Very, very good, Paul.I'm looking at the screen and there's only six lines.Like, I thought it was going to take you about twenty seconds, but that took it for.Well, it's six, a lot in there.、Yeah. Six sentences.Yeah, yeah, that's good.Thank you very much. So, Um, I did ask Paul earlier what all that said, and he said, Oh, there's a bit of a joke in there. There is、um, a joke. Yeah, but and I'm, it, I'm sure our、um, Japanese friends have got that one.、So. I'm not sure our Japanese friends have got that it, one, it might but be a bit our bilingual friends should have got it. Yeah. It reminded me of, I'll finish off with this final story, 12th Man.、Um, it's in that recent book called Sapiens that I really like. And it was the astronauts who were going on the Apollo mission. Were doing training in some desert country in Nevada or wherever it was where they were training. And apparently, they had a fair bit to do with the Native American tribe who were there. And the,、uh, they got to talking to one of the old guys there who found out that they were going to the moon. And he said, There are moon spirits up, up there. And I want you to give them a message from me. So, in Native American, he, he、uh, instructed these two astronauts on this particular phrase, a bit like the one you've just done, but perhaps a fraction shorter, I think. And without the joke. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he made them repeat it until they were absolutely perfect、oh. in it. And this guy was convinced that. The、uh, astronauts, when they were up on the moon, would talk to the moon spirits and say this sentence. Anyway, st- and they said to him, Well, what does it mean? What, what, does it, what does it actually mean, what we're saying? And he said, Oh, don't worry about that.、Um, it's just between me and the moon spirits, but please, if you say that to the moon spirits. Anyway, When they left the training area and they met some other guy who was fluent in that particular Native American language, they said, Look, we met this guy. And he said, When we land on the moon and we're talking to the moon spirits, this is the phrase we're supposed to say. And they gave the phrase to the guy and he starts laughing. And, and they said, what, why, why are you laughing? What's so funny? He said, Oh, the phrase that you are supposed to say, it, it translates as follows. Do not listen to a word these men tell you. They are here to steal your land. <laughs> I hope that's not what you said in Japanese. I know it's not. But anyway, yes,、uh, there we go. Well, dear listener, another bumper episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And I'm going to play a couple of repeats over the next couple of weeks so that we can all just have a little bit of a holiday here at Iron Fist Velvet Glove. And I don't have to worry about it. And we'll miss you. We'll come back with plenty of stories. But I've selected a couple of my favourite episodes to, to repeat over the next two weeks. So enjoy those and talk to you with more current events and news in about three weeks' time. 
Bye for now. Bye, listener. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.